I want you to turn in the Word with me, if you will, to the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. The 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. Today my sermon it is, is entitled, Extravagance, the Antidote to Offense. And um, I really struggled as I approached the fifth sermon in this series because my goal in the onset was not to be redundant. I wanted to approach the concept of extravagance completely different than anything you're going to be learning about in your small groups, anything that you're going to come across in the book. I wanted the sermons to add different perspective and value. So last Sunday when I was worshiping in this service, the Holy Spirit emphatically spoke to my heart. I wasn't even thinking about this week. I was thinking about last Sunday. And the Holy Spirit emphatically spoke to my heart that I was to address this issue while I was worshiping last Sunday. And I argued with God all week long. Because I deal with forgiveness and bitterness from my own personal experience in chapter 15 and 16 in the book of Extravagance. I talk about it in the video that you walked through last week in our small group study, The Hard Work of Extravagance. Many of you in your small group study guides dealt with the issues of unforgiveness. And yet the Holy Spirit would not let me go. And I'm going to approach it from a different angle this morning. But He spoke to me so powerfully last Sunday and I tried and tried and tried to go at it from a different way. I want to challenge you. I really believe that what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, really uh, physically as well as I would like to be. My voice is not as strong, so I can't probably preach it the way I want to preach it. But I want you to know what I'm saying in my heart is one of the most powerful things I've ever shared with you before. And I really believe if you receive it today and respond to it, it can change the trajectory of your life. I'm not just talking to those of you in this room. I'm talking to the people that are listening online. Last weekend, we had 1,100 different people that logged in online to listen to our services. And I believe God is transforming their lives as well. And I want to challenge you this morning. If you hear this message today and you really feel God do something deep in your heart and you know someone, a family member, a friend that you could text, send an email to, we're going to do service again at 1130 and this message will be preached and you can tell them they can log in live to live.northplacechurch.com and they can hear this. I really believe what we hear this morning from the Word has the, tr- the potential to change the entire trajectory of our whole lives. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus' disciples ask Him for a sign of the end of the age or a sign of His coming, He listed several things that would be characteristic of the culture to which He would return. We often talk about some obvious things He mentions. When I preach about Matthew 24 and me and most other pastors or Bible teachers, you hear these phrases, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, disease, those common topics that are end of the age topics. As we see these things increase in our world, we read about them in the newspapers and key magazines or online, we sober up to the reality that we could very well be living into the age that Christ returns. However, I'm afraid we often overlook one of the less obvious signs of His return. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, He says, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all nations and the end will come. 
Even when we read this passage, verse 10 through 14, our minds immediately jump to hot phrases like hate or false prophets or deceive or deception. And then we look at verse 14 and as believers we rejoice that the, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. And when we look at Matthew 24, that's what we talk about most of the time. But over the last several weeks, as the Holy Spirit has been dealing with me about this kind of message, there's a phrase from Matthew 24 that jumps out to me. I've seen it more clearly in the last several days than ever. And until lately, I've never really registered. It's never really registered with me as a sign of the end of the times, like wars and rumors of wars or famine and disease. But Jesus mentions it in the same list as all of those more notable signs. It's in verse 10 when He says, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. The question that immediately jumps out is, who are the offended? Who are the betrayers? Who are the haters? If you look at the context, it's pretty easy to determine he's talking to Christ's followers. In verse number 9, he says, one of the signs of the end of the age is you're going to be hated for my name's sake, you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be offered up. And in the very next verse, he said, and many will be offended. In the context of the conversation, he's talking to believers. And if you don't see that jump out of the context, when he says the love of many will wax cold, the word love there is agape love. And the only way agape can reside in a heart is if the love of God resides because that is the unconditional love of God. So the context of the conversation here is for believers. From where I sit, we're in the tale of two cities, if you want to use the term from the book. We're in a tale of two cultures. On one hand, when I look at the church at large, I see the greatest coming together in the body of Christ that I've ever seen. I mean, you can look, about, you can look in history, you can read church history, but there's been no other time in recorded history where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the potential to come together across denominational lines to touch the world with the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's some amazing denominational lines that are being erased in our world. Matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, I received an invitation to be a fellow. I have to have an earned doctorate, which will not come until May. But once I earn that doctorate, I will have a, an invitation to be a fellow. Uh, and, and this group that has invited me to come is a, a Catholic-based group that is hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit. They've had an older, uh, spirit-filled person come and speak to them about the work of the Holy Spirit. And they've extended an invitation to me to come to Notre Dame University and speak to an elite group of Catholic leaders on the dynamic and the work of the power of the Holy Spirit and how He can supernaturally transform our personal lives. Never in a, another time in history would these kinds of invitations be given to a young, charismatic, Pentecostal leader to come speak on Notre Dame University about the power of the Holy Spirit. There's some lines that are being erased for the expansion of the glory of God right now like never before. Yet, on the other hand, as I move from the big picture, the macro level of the church, down to the micro level of the church, down to the everyday lives of believers, and I look at my own life, and I look at the lives of those I pastor, and I look in the lives of my peers who are pastors in other churches, and I visit and travel in their churches, I see in the body of Christ today more offense, more offended hearts, bitterness, angry uh, hearts, edgy people, unforgiving people that come to church than I have ever witnessed in my life. Division is at at the local church level, is at a catastrophic pace. Division in Christian homes, among Christian siblings, is an epidemic. 
When I look around, there is more division in the body of Christ than I can ever remember. And some people may say, well, pastor, it's because you're more involved than you've ever been. Yeah, but I'm seeing things at a good note that I've never seen before. But in the local level, I'm seeing more people disenfranchised with church. There are more de-churched people in America than there ever been because there's an offense that was laid in their heart three months ago, three years ago, ten years ago, and they decided to disconnect with church, not assembling themselves as Jesus asked them to do because of the hurt and the offense that has grabbed a hold of their heart. Jesus said that one of the signs of the end of the age was that many will be offended, they will betray one another, and they will hate one another. But how can this happen so readily to those of us who are filled with the love of God in our hearts? Henry Blackaby says this, One of the hardest areas in which to trust God is in the matter of justice. When we perceive an injustice, we want to see the guilty party punished. We want justice to prevail, especially when we are the victim. We become impatient if we are not avenged quickly. Yet God warns us that vengeance is not our prerogative. We are to desire justice, but we are not to seek vengeance. Micah 6.8 He goes on to say, When someone offends us, our responsibility is to respond to the offense with forgiveness. Matthew 5.44 God takes the responsibility to see that justice is done. God takes the responsibility to see that justice is done. God loves people too much to allow sin to go unchecked. If we trust the love of God, if we trust the justice of God, If we trust the righteousness of God, He has told us when we have that kind of trust in Him, we won't seek vengeance on our own. We will leave it to Him. We will be silent. We will be patient. We will trust Him because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And if we can trust God's justice, His love, and understand He loves people too much to allow sin to go unchecked. When I resolve that in my heart, I can trust Him. But Blackaby said, the hardest thing you'll ever do is to trust God with injustices that have committed against you. Blackaby nailed it. It's easier to trust God and become a missionary than it is to trust Him with our offenses. It's easier to walk away from a comfortable job and go into the ministry than it is to trust God with our offenses. It's easier to write a check and give away our life savings to a cause that God lays on our heart. It's easier to give a car away to a needy family. It's easier to donate your house to the church. It's easier to do all of those things than it is to trust God with the offenses of our heart. How do I know? Because I know people that have left their jobs to go be missionaries in different parts of the world and they never once struggled with giving up the affluence. But right now I know some of them whose hearts are being eaten alive because they took an offense and they won't let the grudge go. They had enough faith to leave America to be a missionary but they hadn't had enough faith to trust God with the injustice in their life. I know pastor friends who have left six-figure salaries to go pastor in small rural communities and not once have they ever questioned God because of the lack of resources in their life. But I know they have been betrayed by someone in their church and their ministries are hampered because of the offense. I've talked with them. I have counseled with them. I have seen people take amazing leaps of faith to follow God in obedience and they were able to do that with less struggle than they are dealing with the offense in their heart. It takes more faith to trust God when an injustice is committed against you than it does to take a leap of faith and surrender everything to Him. Another key word that Blackaby mentions in his statement is respond. He said, when someone offends us, our responsibility is to respond to the offense with forgiveness. What do you do, whatever you do, 
when you're offended, will determine your entire future. Let me say it another way in this idea of response. Your response to an offense will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. I'm going to say that again because there are some of you who are not going to walk in the abundant life that Jesus promised you until you deal with the offense that is already in your heart. And for those of you that are not dealing with an offense, you're going to have an opportunity the rest of your life to deal with the offenses of life. And you need to know your response to an offense will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. You can harbor the offense in your heart and let it produce sin in your life in the form of anger, outrage, jealousy, resentment, strife, bitterness, attacks, wounding, division, broken relationships, betrayal, and backsliding. Or you can release yourself from that kind of future by choosing the freedom that is only offered by forgiveness. By not allowing yourself to be offended. By responding in this way, you determine what your future is going to be. Your response to the offense will determine your future. It is impossible to live this life and not face the temptation to be offended. It is impossible to live this life and not face the temptation to be offended. Jesus said that very thing. In Luke chapter 17, verse number 1, listen to what He says. He said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. It's impossible. You can't live this life and not be tempted for an offense. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. In verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Notice in verse 1, Jesus said it would be impossible to live in this life and not be tempted to be offended. You cannot journey through this life and not have offense after offense or stinging injustice after stinging injustice pointed your way. But you have a choice to make. Woe to the man where the offense comes. It's going to come and woe to the man. Be sober, be ready, he says, and watch. What I find really amazing in this verse of Scripture is that, you see, he's talking to his disciples. These are the men that have seen him heal the sick. He's multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed 5,000. He's calmed the storm with the spoken word. He's interrupted funerals and raised the dead. And not after any of those miracles did they ever stop him and say, increase my faith, Lord, so that I can do that. Increase my faith so that I can multiply the loaves and fishes. Increase my faith so that I can calm storms. Increase my faith so that I'll be able to raise the dead. They not once asked God to increase their faith in those situations. But the minute he told them to guard their heart against offenses, and the minute he told them, when a brother comes to you seven times in a day and has wronged you and asks for you to forgive him, you have to forgive him seven times in that same day. It's after that conversation that the cry of their heart was, Oh God, increase our faith. They understood in the context of the potential and temptation of offense that they needed faith in their heart to trust God against injustice more than they needed faith in their heart to see the dead raised again. Increase our faith. The Greek word for offend in Luke 17.1 is scandalon. It is kind of sounds really familiar to scandalous. And it was the word that originally referred to the part of a trap where the bait was laid. 
So, so and, and this is not, they weren't referring to a mousetrap, but to give you the idea, it will help you see it more clearly. Picture in your mind, if you will, a mousetrap and it's pulled back and set with that little uh, easy to trigger lever, but extended on the other side is the little place where you put the cheese. The scandalon in the trap was the, the little place where you set the bait. It was where you put the, the key part of the trap. The word signifies laying a trap or putting a trap in someone's way. In the New Testament, when you see the word offend or translated from scandalon, you see the word often describe an entrapment that has been used by the enemy to bring someone's life into captivity. Listen to me. An offense is the tool of the devil to bring people into captivity. An offense is the tool of the devil to bring people into captivity. Listen to the advice Paul gives all of us as pastors and spiritual leaders. Paul is writing to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he's giving him advice as a spiritual leader. But it's not just advice for Timothy. It's advice to all pastors, all spiritual leaders, but it has principles that convey to all of us who are believers. Listen to what he says, 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He's talking here about the leader, the servant. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He's telling Timothy this. But must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Verse 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The word ear trap is the same reference to offend in Luke 17. Here it's translated trap. Uh, The enemy, through the offenses in the heart of men, they are blinded to that. He said you need to confront them so they come to their senses. They're blinded to the offense in their heart. But there has been a trap laid by the enemy, and a trap of an offense, so that that trap the devil has laid, he now has them captive to do his will. The devil's goal is to lure you into an offense to take you captive to to do his will. Like a mouse that is drawn to his death by the cheese in the trap, Satan knows if he can play on your human desire to always be right, if he can play on your human desire to defend yourself, if he can play on your human desire uh, to, to correct injustice that is committed against you, if he can play on your human desire and toy with your pride, if he He can get you to take the bait of the offense. He can control the trajectory of the rest of your life. If the offense takes root in your heart, it'll steal your joy. It'll steal the abundance out of living the Christian life. It'll steal your ability to trust people. It'll rob you of your innocence. It will rob you of everything in following after God. You will be distrusting and angry about everything if you allow the offense to take root in your heart. His goal is to lure you into the trap. Paul was telling Timothy, don't take the bait. He didn't say when opposition comes against you. He says opponents must gently be instructed. In other words, you're going to face opposition. It's a given when you're in leadership. It's a given when you live life. What he says is don't let that take hold in your life. Don't let the enemy control you. Don't take the bait. That's why John Bevere has so rightly called his book on offense, The Bait of Satan. 
in computer terms, an offense to the believer is what a virus is to a computer. For some of us, it's known as the Trojan horse virus, and it often comes from a trusted source. The virus has the ability to enter into the email or contact list of people you know, and then send out an email blast to people on that email list. And so when you see the email from a trusted source, you open the attachment because it came from a relative or a coworker or a friend, but they unknowingly, they didn't know it, the virus sent the email and spread itself. Because it was from a trusted source, you opened it, and the virus then infects your hard drive, and before it's ever corrected, many times it goes undetected. It will destroy your memory and eventually shut down the entire system on your computer. But it got in through a trusted source. Do you realize the most, the deepest pain that will ever be caused in your life are from the people you care about the most? The most trusted sources in your life, the higher the expectation in the relationship, the greater the probability of an offense. The more you love the individual, the more you trust the individual, the more the reality the enemy is going to use that relationship. That's where he's going to set the snare. He's going to set the snare between you and your spouse. He's going to set the snare between you and your children. He's going to set the snare between you or your brother or you and your sister. He's going to set the snare between you and your pastor or you and your small group leader. Because where there are higher levels of love, higher levels of trust, higher levels of expectation, it provides the opportunity for the devil to put a more stinging snare that will be an offense that lays in your heart and it will eventually control the rest of your entire life. He told Timothy to be careful with his those he led so that he could come, they could come to their senses and escape from the trap the devil, uh, from the devil has laid who has held them captive to do his will. Like the Trojan horse virus, it goes undetected in our life. We deny the fact we've ever been offended because to be offended seems so spiritually small. We feel so spiritually immature. And so we go on acting in our pride like it really didn't bother us. But it's a virus spiritually eating us alive on the inside and we're too proud to admit that it did offend us and it's destroying the whole system of our life, our joy, our ministry, our anointing, our walk with God. We let it in. We ignore that it's there. When Jesus Himself said, it's impossible not to face the temptation of offense. And we're never going to get it out until we acknowledge it's there. Blackaby goes on to say, the occasions for taking offense are practically endless. Indeed, we are daily given the opportunity to either be offended by something or to possess an unoffendable heart. The Lord's promise is that He's given us a new heart, a soft, entreatable heart that can be filled with His Spirit and abound with His love. Did you catch the phrase, an unoffendable heart? I want you to let that get into your spirit this morning. It's a heart that refuses to take the bait. And I've been praying since I read that quote all week long. God, mature me to the place of an unoffendable heart. Mature me. Grow me. Get your word in me. Let your spirit develop me until I come to the place of an undefendable heart. Get me to the point where I recognize the trap. I see the cheese. I know it's there, but I have the choice. I refuse to take the bait. Last night, Every night, my, my daughter has a little bit of time, uh, some fear of sleeping alone. And so somehow, we, she actually believes the Word of God is true. 
And so we do devotions. And if I can't do devotions with her at night, she can't sleep by herself. But if I do devotions with her and pray, everything's going to be all right. So every night we do devotions together. She's been telling me over the last couple of days that she's had problems with uh, some girls at school, and particularly one girl, and she's like, Dad, you know, she keeps stealing all my friends. And, and, and she says mean things to me, and I don't know what I've done to her. And so I've been talking to her about it. And as I went into her devotions last night with this sermon in mind, I went to, in her children's Bible to the, the book of Luke chapter 6, and we read together aloud Luke six twenty seven, and a few verses after. And it says, But to you who are listening, Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is it that to you? Even if sinners love the, even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We spent the next few moments trying to talk about what that looked like in the second grade. How you can show love to the girl that's being mean to you. We talked about how Addie could help her in class when she needs help. Identifying needs that she has before she goes and gets them and brings something to her. Smile at her when she's speaking unkind words. Do things that are unexpected to serve her and shower her with love in spite of the unkindness she sows you. And then we're going to pray for her. And I said, Addie, I want to pray. I prayed for her the last few nights. Tonight I want you to pray for her. I want you to bless her. I want you to pray that God blesses her. I want you to pray that heaven comes down upon her and blesses her and prospers her family and gives her things she could never imagine. I want you to pray that God will bless her. She looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, baby, I didn't say this. Jesus said this. She said, are you sure this isn't just your stuff? I said, baby, it's in red in your Bible. And all the words in red are the words of Jesus. He really wants me to pray for her, Dad? I said, yeah, he does. She gritted her teeth. She called her name. And she prayed God would bless her. Now, she did it like she was having a root canal. (laughs) But she prayed that God would bless her. You can't pray... For God to bless those who have offended you and those words keep coming out of your mouth on a repetitive basis and the Holy Spirit not transform your heart. It can't happen. She didn't feel it last night, but she said it. And my second grader is dealing with some adult issues more maturely than some of us in this room today. It hurts, 
But she did it. And God is going to use the words that are coming out of her mouth to transform her heart. And before long, she will be praying what she really feels as love in her heart. This is not a second grade lesson. Some of us as grown-ups need to have a devotion with our Heavenly Father and let Him take us through a journey of Luke 6 and let Him show us how to have the faith of a second grader to love and bless and serve those who committed injustice against us. You see, those hateful little second grade boys and girls grow up to be pastors and deacons and churchgoers and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and Jesus knew that and that's why He said, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful in verse 36. That's the same thing as saying, Be extravagant with my love just as the Father has been extravagant in His love for you. So you say, Pastor, how is extravagance the antidote to my offense? Well, what is extravagance? We've been talking about it for five weeks, reading about it in a book. Studying in our small groups, extravagance is defined as total surrender, reckless abandon, complete trust, courageous faith, unwavering devotion, uncommon obedience. And you will never be more exhibiting these characteristics than when you choose to forgive someone or release an offense against someone who has committed injustice against you. It takes surrender, selfless abandon, childlike trust in God's justice to be able to forgive somebody. It's the greatest expression of your faith in Him to keep your mouth shut, to sit patiently by, to smile when it hurts, and walk in grace in the same way He was like a lamb led before the slaughter. And when they drove nails into His hands, He still said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was exhibiting the love that had been shown to Him and extravagance is asking God to help us exhibit that kind of love to those who have wronged us. There will never be a greater expression of the love of God in your life. There will never be anything more extravagant than you will ever do than demonstrating the love of God to others in the same way He has shown it to you. An unworthy subject, you and I, have received the love of God because He gave us what we did not deserve. Extravagance is doing the same to unworthy people who have hurt us. Listen to me closely. An offended Christian is one who takes life from Christ, but because of fear, cannot release it. An offended Christian is someone who takes life from Christ, but because of fear, they cannot give that life away to other people. An extravagant Christian, on the other hand, is one who responds to the outrageous love of Christ that has been demonstrated to them by giving it away to those who have wronged them. The way you respond to an offense will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. I deal with the details of my own life in chapter 15 and 16 of the book. We talked a little bit about it in the DVD curriculum you're studying in your small groups last week. I will not be redundant on that matter. But for those of you who are new, I was sexually molested as a child by an uncle. My father abandoned my family. He left and came back and left and came back and one day he left and never came back again. I understand hurt. I know pain. But there are moments in my life as a leader 
where it seems it was easier to forgive the atrocities of what I just mentioned and go on and move past them than it is to forgive the little things that sometimes the enemy lays as a snare for our lives. I address it in the book. I want you to, if you need this in more detail, and you do, pride may have kept you from acknowledging it, but you do, I challenge you to study chapter 15 and 16 of the book in more detail because I address how to deal with unforgiveness. I address how God can take your pain and cause it to mobilize you towards your purpose which is how when, when Aaron took the heartache in his life and decided to coach a little girl's team and wound up becoming compassion ministry he turned his hurt into purpose that's what it's about I deal with it in detail there but what I want you it's in the book but I want you to know this learning how to deal with an offense and learning how to forgive is not equivalent to trusting I'll never trust the man that that offended me, molested me anywhere to be near my children. I'll never trust him, but I forgive him. They're not the same. So for those of you that are in situations like that, you need to understand that and do some study on that. For the rest of us, how are we going to respond? Because the way we respond will determine the rest of our life. I really struggled. I asked God how to help me in this message. Here was my temptation. This was my temptation. Lord, what I'm talking about today is deep. What I'm talking about today is personal. So would you allow me just to send them out and tell them to to do it in their prayer closets and just deal with this privately in their own devotion life. But this is one of those things that are going to be lived out when we leave. And I often say that and feel that's what I'm supposed to do because it's something you live with in your personal life. But God didn't let me off the hook that easy today. He said, Brian, there needs to be movement. There needs to be a line drawn in the sand. It doesn't have to take a long time. It just needs to be an act of surrender. An admission, getting past the pride, an admission of the fact, I've been offended. I don't possess enough love in my heart to change it. I need God's help. And today, I plead with you, Lord, increase my faith to walk in extravagance and love like you loved. In just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet. I argue with God and say, God, you know what a shame it would be for me to preach what I felt was my heart and because of the nature, and I know it fits so many people, I know it fits me, that to give an altar call and because of the nature of the topic, nobody respond and me go home feeling like I failed. He said, that's never how you judge whether or not the word failed or not. (laughs) You just do what I tell you to do. So, today, we're going to stand to our feet. And I realize it's impossible to live life with offense. And I realize there are people who will still hide that. And so I challenge you today, like Paul told Timothy to do, so that they will not be blinded or they will come to their senses and not be prone to the trap and captive to the will of the enemy. So that life and joy and hope, you can laugh again and it be real, not fake. You can know life again. Today is not the end, it's the beginning. But I really believe we need to move, we need to act. In just a moment, we're going to stand to our feet. And I don't care if nobody comes, I've done my part. I don't care if one people come. And I don't care if the congregation is so full, we line up down the end. The issue is movement before God. I'm not going to cover up the fact my heart's been hurt, I've been wounded, i got an offense in front of me. But I'm coming to the altar today, God, because I don't want to take the bait.
I need your help. When we stand, if that's you, from the balcony to the floor, it may take a minute to get here, but I think it's important that you respond. This isn't what I was going to do. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit time. But I believe it's God, so I'm going to be obedient. We're not going to stay here long when you get here. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing. But the issue is, you listen to His Spirit. If He's telling you to come, you obey. Would you stand with me all over this place? If you have an offended heart, and you need to deal with the offense, I want you to come from the balcony to the floor, and you need to acknowledge, I need God's help today, dealing with the offense. And there may have been some who walked into this room that never considered a defense, but as the Word of God has confronted your heart, you realize it was my pride covering up the offense. I just believe the simple act, just like the man with a withered hand stretched forth his hand, or the lame man took up his mat, or the blind man went and washed in the pool, the simple act of responding to what God said to do sets a miracle in motion for the rest of your life. You can't, employ, you can't affect everybody else. Romans 12, 12 says, as much as it depends upon you, live it. don't worry about them. You worry about you. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. They may not receive it, but you can't let this sit in your heart. If you're still coming, you can't get here, just fill up the The key is movement. Move, move, move. Respond, respond. Say, yes, Lord, I hear your voice. The way you respond will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. Can I tell you this morning, I'm, I'm in the altar. I'm here. If I'm listening to this message today, I respond to the altar. I know what you're feeling. I understand it. I want to pray for you today. The key thing was movement. And I want to pray for you today. Father, my heart is moved by the faith, the surrender, the selflessness of the people that responded in a public environment in front of everybody to say, God, help me. I can't do this on my own. But I'm not ignorant to the fact I didn't deserve what you gave me. And Lord, you so extravagantly and outrageously loved me. Would you help me? Would you enable me? Would you come inside of me and live through me and love through me in a way that I can on my own? God, would you take every broken heart, every offended spirit, every root of bitterness today, and would you respond to the faith of these people? I know this in the end, and all the problems are not going to go away because they came to the altar. But they just invited you. They swallowed their pride. They repented when they came to this altar, and they're asking you to step into their situation and give them strength to do what they cannot do on their own. They are saying it doesn't belong to me. Silence my mouth. I'm not going to talk about it in private. I'm not going to tear them down in public. I'm going to silence my mouth and I'm going to leave it to you Lord I'm going to trust your justice I'm going to trust your love I'm going to trust your mercy and God would you help me be merciful the way you are merciful Lord will you help me be extravagant in grace the way you are extravagant will you 
free every man and woman, child, boy, girl who's responded to this altar today. Would you free them from the trap of the enemy? Would you liberate them from the captivity that has held them? Rob them of their joy. Rob them of their freedom. Rob them of their anointing. Rob them of the blessing in their life and their family and their ministry. Would you prosper them now, God? Would you release it upon their lives? Would you, would you walk back into their prayer life? Let them sense your presence again. Let the Word of God become alive to them again. Breathe upon them today, Father. May this day be a day they write on their calendar. It's the day the rest of their life changed. Now, Lord, for all of us, will you bless us and keep us? Will you make your face shine down upon us? Will you be gracious to us? Turn your countenance our direction. And Lord, we all know what we mean today when we ask, God, give us peace in these relationships today. In Jesus' name.